Well, as I'm sure all of you know, one of the things that you begin to perceive differently as you get older is time. It's why for our children and grandchildren, birthdays and Halloween and Christmas never seem to get here. But for us, we never seem to get a break from those same holidays, right? No one reminds me of this more these days than my niece, Ava. Recently at a family gathering, I very foolishly promised her that every time I saw her, I would show her a new magic trick. Now, I told her this thinking that I would definitely forget about it, and she would probably forget, but again, very foolish. Because now at every family gathering, I think, maybe she'll forget. She comes right over to me, and that's the first thing she asks for. And so, I usually don't remember what I'm supposed to do, so I'll have to kind of scramble, go hide in the bathroom for a minute, look at my phone, watch a YouTube video to try to remember it. But I'll come out and inevitably I will show her and she'll be amazed by it. She's a great audience. But then she'll ask me to show her again and I'll do it again. And this goes on and on and on until I have to say, well, I'll just show you later. I'll show you again later. And what happens? Of course, every three minutes she asks me if it's time yet. Is it later yet? No, honey, maybe in an hour or so thinking that if I set a definitive time limit on it for a five-year-old, that's going to make a difference. And every three or so minutes, she'll insist that an hour has passed. Because to her, it feels like an hour has passed. What seems to her like an eternity barely seems like enough time for me to catch my breath. And so I think therein lies a key analogy for our understanding of this passage this morning. Because human beings perceive time and perceive reality, really, totally differently from how God does. And so when we go through things in life, when things seem to be agonizingly long, when we seem like we have, there's no end to our waiting, what seems just untenable to us is actually nothing before an eternal God. And so when our good days seem too short and our bad ones seem too long, when our suffering and God's apparent silence goes further than we can bear, when false teachers and our own minds cause us to doubt that He sees us in our waiting, we need this comforting reminder this morning that the eternal, transcendent God not only sees us, but constantly, patiently, graciously is always with us. So last week as a church, Peter turned his attention away from scoffers and from cynics and skeptics, and instead he focused on us when he said, dear friends, which is not only, the, I'm sure, the, the congregations, the Christians he's writing to, scattered throughout Asia Minor, but I'm quite sure by the Spirit's power that is a term of endearment meant for us as well. While some people, Peter's been trying to convince us, they'll spend their whole life looking and clawing after power and control and worldly things. 
They'll spend their whole life doing that, all while they're sneering at us for having the audacity to hope in Christ's resurrection, to hope in His return. Peter tells us, nevertheless, to take heart, because the day of the Lord is coming. And so this morning, we'll be meditating together on what that means, that the day of the Lord is coming. Let's look beginning in verse 8 this morning. Now in verse 8, Peter again offers us a reassuring embrace by calling us dear friends. He'll do this a couple more times before he's done. But right after that, he offers us what seems to us like a riddle when you hear it read out loud. He says, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. And so what does it mean? Well, in short, I think what Peter's trying to get at here is he's trying to remind us that God experiences reality, something that we think is so fundamental, something that we think is so obvious. God experiences that so very differently than us because, after all, He is so very different from us. After all, how could this triune God who the Scriptures describe describe as eternal, always being, before there was a concept like before, and after there will be a concept like after. God exists. And He's transcendent. He doesn't need a planet. He doesn't need gravity. He doesn't need oxygen. He doesn't need nutrients to exist. He doesn't need to sleep to rest. He doesn't need to take a break from work to 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 bring his blood pressure down. God simply exists. He's transcendent of all those things because he's the one that created time and space and matter and uh, most miraculously of all, conscious life itself. All from nothing. So how could this kind of God not be fundamentally outside of our wildest conceptions? This has boggled the minds of the world's greatest philosophers and theologians for all of human history. What is this God? Who is He? And what is He really like? Christians have tried to answer that in their own clever and creative ways. And I think sometimes some of the things they say can be helpful for us. I think it's not always the end of the conversation, but can help us getting in the right, uh, help us get in the right frame of mind to think about God. For instance, Anselm famously said, God is the one whom no greater thing can be imagined. Aquinas pointed to five realities in our world, things that we all take for granted. Motion, cause, contingency, perfection, purpose. And then he asked with these ideas, he asked, well, what got everything set in motion? How is everything... How does everything have correlated causes and effects? How does existence exist? How is existence like us aware of its own existence? And moreover, how can creatures like us have things like ideals and standards and morals? And how is all of this possible? And all of these philosophical questions point us to a metaphysical being that is one that is above and beyond and outside of our limited human capacity. See, in even answering these questions, Anselm and Aquinas have to 
have to use language in, in, in such a way that it strains our very ability to understand what they're pointing to. Because the God that they're pointing to is so beyond our ability to fathom. And yet, we live in a, in, a, in a reality. We live in an existence where, first of all, existence exists. Why is there something rather than nothing? All the laws of science would tell us that if there was nothing at one point, which is what all scientists think, then all of a sudden there is something. Something had to create the something that, was, that now inhabits the nothing. And furthermore, how is this existence a bunch of electrons and, and, and eons and, and neutrons and atoms and, and molecules and cells, how did all of that go from nothing to becoming aware of its existence? To have consciousness. To have thought to be aware that it is aware. And beyond even that, how is it possible that anything could have something like joy? Something like sorrow. How could we be a bunch of carbon come together with hydrogen and yet we are able to experience music and childbirth and fellowship meals? How is it possible that something like this could exist? So is it any wonder then that Peter says, what is a thousand years to a kind of God like that. And Peter takes his cue from Moses here. He's not just coming up with this argument on his own. He's, 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 he's citing the, the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90. And Moses prays, Lord, You have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before You gave birth to the earth and to the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Not you were God, but you are God. You exist in eternity past just as really and just as presently as you do in this moment and as you do in the future. That's the kind of being that we're dealing with here. And yet you return mankind to dust. For in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by like a few hours of the night. This universe is so much larger, so much older than we can possibly fathom. And we are just like a drop of water in an ocean of time. All of our generations collectively. If you strung out all of our, the years of life represented in this building right now, it's a speck in the grand scheme of time. And we are just a grain of sand and a galaxy that is staggeringly large and is one of billions, not of planets, of galaxies that themselves have millions and billions of stars unfathomable. It's no wonder that when we contemplate God, our brains start to turn to mush. But Moses gets it right. 
Peter gets it right. From dust we were formed, to dust we'll return. That's what we know. That's the expanse of our knowledge. That's the, that is the, the, the scope of our influence, is that we're dust. And so now for two millennia, the church that has been through unimaginable suffering, unimaginable travails, has been looking towards the eastward skies, waiting for Christ to come back. Waiting for His return. Waiting for His second advent. And all of that time, all the things we've experienced in our own lifetime, all the things that this world has experienced in the past two millennia, Moses says, that's not like even a full watch of night to God. The God of heaven and earth. The God who is the God of armies and armies and armies of angels. We're just like my niece, I suspect, who for 30 minutes might as well be 30 years. That's how we perceive what God is doing in our lifetime. So what's the point of, of, of what Peter's been saying, what these church saints have been teaching us? They're telling us, and this is important for us to consider and remember, that God is so unlike us. But that makes room for some very good news. Because folks, I know myself. And I know that I can be prone to anxiety or depression, prone to apathy and doubt. I know I'm prone to believing the lies of partisans and salesmen while disbelieving God's truth spoken through the prophets and the apostles. I know that firm convictions and desires I have one day are gone the next. I know certainties that I have that are here in the morning are gone before it's even lunchtime. That's the kind of people we are. That's the kind of experience that we have. That we are so fickle, so capricious, so subject to change and influence that when we say, God, where where are your promises? Where is your triumph? Where is your victory for us? We need to stop and remember first that we might have woken up in the morning singing His praises, but before we got to the breakfast table, we were a functional atheist. I suspect that we're like Paul in Romans 7 who says, I don't understand what I'm doing. Boy, is not relatable. I don't understand what I'm doing. This is the Apostle Paul, by the way. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate instead. Does that sound familiar? For the desire to do what is good is within me. But there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. We all know, listen, if, 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 if sin, if the idea of sin hurting other people, offending God, if that's just a mental thing for us, and we all know it's bad, we could stop being sinners right now. 
And yet I suspect before the sun sets on us this day, we'll look back and think, I can't believe I did all that stuff. I can't believe I believed like that. I can't believe I spoke like that. I thought like that. I acted like that towards my own friends and family. Not an enemy. I was mean and nasty and vengeful and spiteful to my spouse or my children or my parents. See, if, if, if all of that is just mind over matter, then all of us could walk out here bona fide humanitarians and philanthropists. But it's, it's deeper than that. We are so... See, this is the problem with sin. It's not that we just do little naughty things that offend God and put mud in the eye of each other. It's not that just it's little naughty actions that we could do better about. It's that we are so warped and skewed and bent and distorted by sin that our mind, our willpower, our ability to do good and to worship God and to love one another, that's impossible for us to do. It's like crashing a beautiful new car into the side of a building and then entering that car into the Daytona 500 and expecting to be able to win or even compete. It's delusion. It's broken down. You might have the best intentions for getting across the finish line. You might have a lot of confidence that you're a good driver, but you are not working with something that can do it for you. That's what sin is all about. See, we have too small of a view of sin. We think, oh, well, if I don't cuss, I don't get addicted to any substances. If I go to church and I'm not too mean to people, and I cut down on my gossiping. I don't get rid of it. I just cut down on my gossiping. I'm not sinning, and God should be really impressed with me. But the reality is that we are so warped. Our, our, per, even the way that we think. Do you ever meet a person and you think, that person is so crazy. They are just so... I mean, they're, they're, the way they view what's happening in this conversation right now and perceive the world is unhinged. See, they think they're being completely normal. I think we'll do stuff and think, this is normal. This is the way everybody does it. And we're shocked when people are shocked by us. Peter's point to us, or as Jesus so succinctly puts it in Matthew's Gospel, our spirit might be willing. We might know better, but our flesh is weak. Peter's point is that we actually need someone that's unlike us in order to save us. Because if we relied on what we can see and how we can feel and what we can do, we're in a real mess. We will live through historical events and think, well, as a society, we'll never do that again. Unfortunately, we're learning with from politics to a pandemic, we can get a few months away from a situation and go right back to those same mistakes. That's what we can do. That's what human, that's what the greatest country on earth ever to exist is capable of. Falling right back into its same messes. All of our aspirations for who we could be and what we could do and how we could change the world meet the cold, harsh 
daylight of reality a shocking amount of times. And so if we're relying on ourselves or someone like us or things like us, we'll be very sad to the day we die. But Peter points us to someone who doesn't have our sins, doesn't have our flaws, doesn't have our weaknesses, but has the power to love and to forgive and to heal and to resurrect. Something that we can never do on our own volition. And so thanks be to God that Peter points us to someone unlike the false teachers of his day or ours, unlike our our disbelieving and doubting selves who lose heart so easily, to have the best intentions and go nowhere with it. Because in verse 9, Peter writes, the Lord does not delay His promise. That's That's what we see, delay. But the reality is that the Lord is patient with us. Not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Robert uh, uh, Jensen, the Lutheran minister and theologian that just passed a few years ago, he wrote a book with his granddaughter's help. I think it was called Conversations with Papa. I might have referred to this before. So if this is, if I'm, if I'm going over well-trod territory, excuse me. Because again, my perception of what I've said and what reality is is, is, is not always accurate. Case in point. But his, his granddaughter asked him a very good question. If God is perfect and all-wise and all-powerful and all-loving, why would He ever even allow Adam and Eve to have the, the capability to sin, to rebel? That's a good question but I love how Jensen answered it. First of all, he said, well, well, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. But isn't it wonderful that by the Lord allowing that to happen, one day throughout the many long centuries, you were born into this world. You. And somewhere along the way, you came to faith in that Lord and that Jesus. And now, for all eternity, you, who would not have existed in any other world, are alive and known and loved by the Lord for all eternity. I think that's a real good answer to why God allows the things to happen in this world that He does. We don't know why He does, but we do know that He uses those things that we meant for evil for our own good. To love us. To save us. See, God in His inscrutable, mysterious ways sought better to allow us and all our wickedness, willing wickedness, to exist this way so that He could love and save us out of all the things that we do in this world. This eternal, transcendent God is not like us. He doesn't make false promises. He doesn't fulfill His Word only partially. And His delay is not because He doesn't care about us or He doesn't understand our suffering. No, the Lord's delay is because He's patient. 
He knows everyone in this world inside out. He sees how awful we can truly be. And yet, He doesn't pull the trigger quickly. He doesn't let loose the guillotine. Even though there's so much evil in our world, so much wickedness in His church, He still chooses to love and to save sinners. To exalt them. To rule and reign with Him on high one day. Church, I love you. Which is why I'll be very honest with you. Some of the worst people I know and have known have been Christians. The worst. Some of the most manipulative and selfish and greedy and ignorant and abusive people I've ever dealt with have been Christian people. But that shouldn't surprise us. Because after all, don't we confess on a routine basis that everyone's a natural-born sinner that we all often and willingly choose to ignore God and despise and work against one another? Let's get real, friends. You live with yourselves and you live with one another. You know how you think and speak and act six and three quarters days a week. Maybe we suppress that while we're at church, but we know how we are the rest of the week. And yet the Spirit says through Peter, the Lord is patient with you because He doesn't desire your death and your demise. He desires you to come to repentance and come to restoration and reconciliation. See, the Lord is also not like us in the fact that unlike us who are petty and spiteful against our enemies and even against our friends, by the way, He doesn't want any of us to perish. He wants everybody to trust and obey. He wants everybody to be redeemed and reconciled and resurrected. And He's so overflowing with patience and mercy and compassion and grace that while we were far off from Him, He came near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God so loved this miserable, rotten, selfish, corrupt, and violent world that He sent His only Son of eternal equality with the Father and the Spirit, one God and three, to live and die and rise so that everyone who believes on Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, I can hardly wait for Christmas time. This is where I feel just like my niece. Because sure, I like the decorations, I like the food, I like the get-togethers, I like all the festivities. But the thing I love so much that I can hardly wait for is to be able with you to worship Jesus together in this way by singing and reading and confessing how God, although He was eternal and transcendent, so very unlike us, loved us so much that He became like us. That He was born in a human body And he subjected himself to his own creation, to time and to space and to us. That he let himself be subject to suffering and sorrow so that we who trusted in him would become like what God always was and is and will be. Friends, don't let scoffers or skeptics, partisans or pundits, salesmen or cynics distract you away from this truth that when we couldn't come up to God, God came down to us. 
And when we had nothing but sin, He gave us everything in Himself by giving us grace. Peter is not only comforting us with this, but he's confronting us too. Because it's true that all our years are like just another day to the Lord. Another day that He can pour out mercies in the morning, that He can refresh us with grace in the evening. But it's also true that there will be one day in particular, the day of the Lord, where He will pour out all of His just, that is, is His proper wrath and His righteous judgment on a wicked world. None of the the retribution that comes from the Lord will be misplaced. None of it will be too far, too much. It will be an appropriate, if not gracious, response to what we've really deserved. And in verse 10, Peter tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning that it will be here suddenly without announcement or warning, and it will tear into this world and its history with all the terrifying force of a holy, holy, holy God who has not forgotten one deed done in the dark. Not one. And He will meet it with being full of truth and justice and glory. It will be a day of the Lord so much more climactic and final than any of the other days of the Lord that we've read about all throughout the Old Testament. When the world flooded, when Sodom was leveled, when Egypt was plagued, when Jericho imploded, when Samaria was sacked, when Jerusalem was exiled, it'll be a day of judgment that makes all of those things look like nothing by comparison. It'll be something that's never been seen and something that will never be seen again. And the only way that Peter can make sense of this to us is to describe it in images that we can't even begin to understand what he's talking about. The, the, the people, the natural Greek speakers, the people that study the ancient world, they look on this stuff and, and still say, what Peter's talking about here is beyond our ability to understand it. The images he's using, the words he's using, strain again at reality. And he talks about the skies, the galaxies, even the heavens themselves catching with a cosmic fire. Like a literal Big Bang. He's talking about atomic particles and all spiritual beings even on the earth will erupt and be dissolved into nothing. What could that possibly mean? And if all of that's not horrifying enough, all the world, everyone and everything that's ever lived in it, will be fully exposed and disclosed to all. No secrets, no mysteries, no cover-ups, no hidden things. All will be seen and known and reckoned with. All the things we've labored for in this life, all of our investments, our securities, our reputations, our ideologies, will be atomized by the thundering voice of an Almighty God who we will stand before naked and accountable. What this will actually be like, I don't think we'll be able to know. I think when we get to these mysterious parts of Scripture, I, I, sometimes I think the worst thing we can do 
is try to map these things onto what we can see and know. When we read in the book of, of Daniel or Revelation what's coming in the future, and we are so silly to take that and try to say, well, that's obviously about the stock market and it's about this president. That is such a shallow view of, of, of what the Lord is going to do in history. We have no idea. We simply have to admit that we've reached the limits of our knowledge. How we sometimes think as people, even as Christians, that we can fully know the mind of God. Who tells us in Scripture, your thoughts are not anywhere close to my thoughts. Who says to Job after he shows him, takes him on a tour of the universe, says, do you think you get that, Job? Do you think you understand it? And Job covers his mouth where we try to go and speak and rationalize. It's laughable, folks. We can't even know what goes on in our own minds most of the time. And we would deign to think that we could understand what God is doing or what His purposes are or what His wisdom really looks like. We're like childish little ones doubting the good promises of an eternal God because we can't see them or hear them or experience them in the here and the now. No, we're like a baby. There's no object permanence. We think, oh, it's so silly. You look at a baby and go, peekaboo, and close your face. And it's like that you leave. That's how we are like with God. He's, he speaks, I'm, I'm, I'm sending you grace and, and promises and, and, and redemption. And then He covers His face. Oh, where'd He go? That's exactly how we are. But in the light of this coming day of the Lord, this eternal God who is just is also patient. Even the judgment we read about in the Bible is meant to lead us to redemption. His forbearance and taking so long with us is so that we'll have plenty of time to consider and to repent. And so Christian, when you don't understand why you have to wait so long to have that final vindication, to have that final relief. Consider the Lord is patiently giving you the time to believe it and to trust it and obey Him. He invites all of us who are so childish so often to have instead a childlike faith and Him who knew no sin and yet became sin for us. So that in Him, we might become instead the righteousness of God. We who, when we can't see what's in front of us, if we can't see something with our own eyes, we're so silly as to think it doesn't exist. That kind of pathetic and pitiful human race. The Lord saw not only when it was ignorant, but when it was downright evil and said, I am going to give up my glory. I'm going to give up my eternal dignity. I'm going to give up my very life on the cross so that these people who are like babies might become more like what I am. What an incredible truth.
And it's a truth for us that's not only true today, but it's true for every coming day. So church, because it's true, because God is patient, believe this good news that's for you. Let's pray. Father, in this life of suffering and sorrow, make us patient for you because you're so very patient with us, desiring that none perish and that all repent. So help us, Holy Spirit, to actively believe this gospel and to trust and obey Jesus, who although he was unlike us, became like us so that we might become like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.